Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to Coffeehouse Theology, the summer edition. Uh, it is Wednesday, July the 8th, 2020. Brian, it's easy to lose for, uh, track of what day it is. It uh, is, it is. During this time, especially in the summer. Uh, but today we move into the prophets, and so we're going to be looking at Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and Micah, uh, paralleling what uh, we're preaching on Sunday morning. So uh, it should be fun to explore these in a little deeper format. Uh, and uh, as we move into scene six of Act Two, God's Covenant at people of the great big story. Uh, Brian, would you start us with a word of prayer today? Absolutely. Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace and your son that saves us. Uh, thankful for your word, Father, that in, in this kind of chaotic time that we have a firm place to stand because the, the, these words, these prophets spoke are your word eternal. And so, Father, give us hearts and minds to be obedient and, and to hear your truth and to obey. And um, bless Jay and I as we speak. And uh, it's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Brian. So I want to spend a couple minutes before we uh, get into the first book we're going to look at today, which is Jonah, just doing a little introduction uh, kind of to the prophets. Uh, as many of you know, these books of the Bible are often kind of overlooked and underappreciated, and so it's helpful to, to gain some orientation about where we're at. Uh, many of you remember that uh, we, we left off uh, last episode uh, with the kingdom being divided. Uh, so God's people are now divided north and south, and sometimes that's confusing. And you have to kind of look in your study Bible and stay oriented about which prophet is speaking to which kingdom, and you know what uh, what's what's taking place historically. There were a lot of kings that we talked about last uh, week that came and went, and most of those were not good kings. So we need to remember that uh, the northern kingdom uh, is now called Israel. Uh, it also is sometimes called Samaria because they made that the capital of the northern kingdom, uh, or sometimes it's called Ephraim. Uh, the southern kingdom is usually referred to as Judah, and its capital, of course, is Jerusalem. Uh, and so during this time period, the northern kingdom really didn't have any good kings. There were some that were more successful uh, political, politically or militarily than others, but uh, there weren't very many good kings. And, and Judah only had a few, only a few shining stars. So it was a dark time uh, in Israel's history. And so God, what he does is he rises up, raises up these prophets to indict and convict the people uh, for, for really breaking... The the covenant, the promise that he had with them, um, and, and and they also break his commands, and and those things are similar but yet distinct. And so remember, as Brian taught us a few weeks ago, the Ten Commandments are organized into two tables. The first first table, the first four commandments, deal with loving God, or having a right relationship with Him. Uh, sadly, this is where the Israelites falter, and and they they begin to worship idols, uh, and so that's been a constant plague and continues to be an issue in this this time of Israel's history. And so their worship is divided. Now, they don't totally stop worshiping Yahweh altogether, but they add the, the, the worship of other gods, much like we do in our culture. Uh, they elevate things that the created above the creator. And so uh, that, of course, affects the way that they live. And that's the second table of the Ten Commandments, which have to do with our relationships with others. And so God cares about the way that we live. He wants us to live with truth and integrity and justice. And so because people aren't right with God, because their worship's not right, well, their, their practice, their lives uh, aren't right as well. And so God appoints these prophets to challenge the people and 
and their religious and political leaders. Uh, so, of course, this makes these guys unpopular figures in their own day and age. Uh, nobody wants to be told that they're not right with God and they're not living right, uh, and that because of that, consequences are going to happen. But but God sends these men uh, to this task. Now, when we talk about the prophets, there's two categories, major and minor. And so the temptation is to hear that and say, well, the major prophets, guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, they're the important ones. And the other guys are, are minor leaguers, you know, like in baseball. Uh, that's not what it means. Uh, instead, it has to do uh, with their length. And so the minor prophets are just shorter, hear it that way. Um, what's interesting to me about the minor prophets is you, you get a condensed version of their ministry and teaching, uh, whereas it's sometimes easy to get lost in the weeds of some of the, the longer prophecies um, where you're pretty focused in the, the minor prophets. So I think they're, they're very fascinating to study. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, the Bible, uh, the prophets aren't just, uh, so are, are some of the most misunderstood and overlooked books of the Bible. Uh, and, and these aren't just epic rants from angry old men, uh, which is kind of the way that we depict them in our minds, right? They're urgent messages from a brokenhearted God calling his people uh, to repent and to return home. And so, Brian, I, I think as the world struggles, tying this to where we're at today, to emerge from this global pandemic, we've got a, a lot of confusion and fear about what's happening right now, about what we should do, what we shouldn't do. Um, and so these this word is timely because the world was changing. God was sending these prophets to say, things are changing. And, and, and during this time, we need to remember that responding to God's word always leads to revival and renewal among God's people, both then and now. Amen. So my conviction, our conviction is, is that God is still speaking to us through these prophets. The question is, are we listening? Right. So Brian, Brian, what, what would you say about, about where we're at? culturally. Well, and that's that's where the, these words, right, there's so much information, and, and there's conflicting opinions from, from you know, seemingly intelligent, right, resourceful resources. And so when you, when you want to discern what's correct, we turn back to the Word. Yeah. We turn back to what God's Word says, because we know this is true. And, and, and sometimes it calls us to do things that, that aren't culturally compliant. Sometimes it calls us to be culturally compliant, even if we don't believe in the things the culture is calling us to do. Right? When it says obey human, all human authority, it's not in terms of whether we think that human authority is good, bad, right, or wrong. It's is the human authority scriptural or not scriptural? And that's what's so cool about the prophets, right, is they so clearly call the people back to scripture. So clearly call the people back to God going, I know all of these things are going on. And I realize you're looking for security, right? We see that in the northern kingdom looks for security yeah. and military compliance. And the southern kingdom ends up selling out to the Babylonians. Right? They both fall, but in different ways. Yeah. And we're at risk of that same thing, of falling because we don't believe our God's strong enough to protect us, or falling because we are complicit in, in things we shouldn't be complicit in. And so in all those things, right, these prophets, especially these four prophets, right, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and Micah, call us in really different aspects of understanding our cultural, our cultural approach. And it's incredibly relevant to yeah. what we're doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's, uh, let's dive in uh, with, uh, with the prophet Jonah. And that's always a good place to start because he's probably the best known, um, but he might be the least understood because right. we've heard about him in Sunday school. Uh, you know, we've all heard all about Jonah and the big fish. Uh, we've seen the 
the VeggieTales movie, right? Um, the, the reality is that sometimes we have this caricaturized version of the story, but what you really have here is, it, it's, first of all, a literary masterpiece. I mean, yes. it is in these four chapters, there is so much here. But uh, we're going to kind of follow the same pattern uh, for, for today's podcast. I'm going to give you a profile, an outline, some key verses, and then what we learn. And remember that there's a handout available for you to download on the email, uh, or you can email us if you, you can't find it anywhere else. Uh, but uh, we're going to walk through that uh, together today, and then that'll give you some tools as you study these books for yourself. So Jonah's prophet profile, uh, he was from a village called Gath Hefer. Uh, it was about three miles north of Nazareth. So interestingly enough, uh, he was from Galilee, uh, just like Jesus uh, would be. Uh, we have one other place in Scripture that tells us about him. It's in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. It tells us that he was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Now, Jeroboam II reigned in the 8th century, uh, and under him, the borders of Israel, the northern kingdom, were expanded, and it says in that verse, according to the word of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So there was this kind of moment uh, for the people in which things were going well. They're expanding their borders. Uh, this king had some power. Uh, their their neighbor, Assyria, was, was relatively weak during that time. So Tim Keller, uh, an author and a pastor, puts it like this. He said, in that context, we learn that unlike the prophets Amos and Hosea, who had criticized the royal administration for its injustice and unfaithfulness, Jonah had supported Jeroboam's aggressive military policy to extend the nation's power and influence. So the original readers would have remembered Jonah as intensely patriotic, a highly partisan nationalist. And they would have been amazed that God would send a man like that to preach to the very people he most feared and hated. Uh, And that was the Assyrians, the Ninevites. And so that's why uh, when it says, arise and go to Nineveh, right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's what happens to prophets. Arise and go. That was a little unusual. Most prophets didn't have to leave their borders to carry out their ministry, but okay. But Nineveh is where Joseph's heart or Jonah's heart had to stop beating uh, because uh, this was a wicked evil place and evil people, um, enemies of God's people. And so if we walk through the outline of the book, uh, we see there are two acts, and that's the brilliant thing about Jonah. It literally uh, forms this, uh, this this structure by which the first two chapters parallel on the second two. So the first act is Jonah in the sea. And of course, in scene one, Jonah flees God's call to Nineveh. Uh, he gets on a boat to go to Tarshish, which is literally the ends of the earth as they knew it. It was the other direction, like he is trying to outrun God, which of course proves futile because in Act 2, uh, God sends a great storm, which by the way is one of the motifs of Jonah. It's an interesting uh, task to just go through and underline all the times the word great is mentioned. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, this book, like all others, is about the greatness of God uh, and his plan for mankind. But this great storm comes. And so, of course, uh, they pretty quickly identify that this is not a normal storm. Uh, The sailors, even the pagan sailors, know something's up here spiritually. And so they find Jonah below deck. They bring him up. uh, They question him. Jonah finally admits to the fact that he's running for God. And he says, throw me overboard. Uh, And so they do. And as we know, Jonah ends up uh, famously in the belly of a great fish. And it's there that we have this beautiful prayer of Jonah in in chapter 2. It's written like a psalm. And so here uh, we see Jonah finally kind of in the depths recognizing, uh, as it says in chapter 2, verse 9, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, At this point, God is the only one who could rescue him. And so he does. Uh, And with that realization, uh, the, the Lord's amen. 
man, so to speak, is got, is the fish spitting Jonah out onto dry land, vomiting him out. Uh, and so Jonah gets a second chance, uh, which is God's grace and mercy. And so uh, he this time answers the call to go to Nineveh, and he preaches a one-sentence sermon <laughs> calling the people of this wicked city for three days to repent. And guess what? The people do. Uh, and there's this social reform. You know, the Assyrians were one of the most violent people in history, and evidently that violence had bled over into their own culture, and that's exactly what happens. And so uh, the, the king and all of the people, they, they stop for a season their violence. And so uh, the, the type of revival, we don't get the impression that it's a spiritual revival. We don't see them calling on the name of Yahweh or beginning to offer sacrifices or those kind of things, but at least they're obedient to the message um, to change their, their behavior, their ways. And so, of course, we would love it if the book ended at chapter three, but it goes on to chapter four where we see Jonah angry because God has relented in destroying them. Uh, And we begin to realize that Jonah's heart is a lot like ours. He thinks he knows God, uh, but in reality... The fact for Jonah is is that um, you know he he doesn't want to admit that God's mercy and compassion is deeper than his, uh, and so it's a fascinating ending to the book as God teaches Jonah this lesson. This plant comes up to give him shade, uh, then God sends the the heat to, to scorch that plant, a worm to eat it, and the heat the hot heat blows on Jonah, and Jonah's super frustrated, and uh, and so God says. Uh, is it is it you know as far as the, the in verse ten there he says do you pity the plant which you did not labor nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night should I not pity Nineveh the great city in which there is more than a hundred and twenty thousand people and so there's some fascinating things that we see uh, in Jonah it's a story that uh, has been said it's simple enough to delight a child but complex enough to confound a scholar uh, and so one of the things people have noted is is that it parallels uh, the story of the son. And so Jonah plays both those roles. Uh, the first role of the rebellious younger brother who tries to run away from the father, um, but then also the self-righteous older brother. And that's the second half of the book where we see uh, the, that, that dual heart of Jonah to be both of those things at the same time. And so it teaches us about God's uh, very heart uh, for his children. And, and, and it's the kind of the essence of the gospel uh, that, uh, that we see both stories ending on a cliffhanger, the story of the prodigal son, uh, the father asking the older son to come back to the banquet to be part of the family again, Uh, the story of Jonah, God asking the question, should I not care about those people in that city? Because God cares. Uh, Brian doesn't. He he cares for uh, he cares for the younger brother, the older brother, and he cares for the lost. Absolutely, and that and that's what's so God's compassion. That's that's what's so kind of shocking about Jonah's character, right? That, that even though he obviously hears the voice of God and he disobeys it, then obeys it, he knows God's character. But even with all that, he's so full of hate and anger, Yeah, right? That, that nationalist instinct in him just doesn't seem to be tempered. And we don't get us even, you know, like you say, I would really appreciate kind of chapter five to talk about Jonah's repentance, right? That Jonah understood not, not to be angry, but, and, and, you know, I loved your definition from this, this past Sunday of love that, you know, a cultural love is I like what this does for me and want more of it. And that's Jonah's view toward the plant and Jonah's view toward the Ninevites. Yeah. Right. And, and because the Ninevites, there's nothing they could really do for him. And, and Jonah just has that in, inherent hatred for them. Um, and so it, that's, that's something for us to look inside ourselves and ask, you know, even though we know God's character, even though we can hear God's voice, even though we're even compliant, right, with some of the things God asks us to do, are we obedient, right? So is, is our heart with God? 
And, and we see that we've talked about that with our children, right? That, that so many children are in the church are raised under forced external compliance. And so they don't really have a heart change for Christ. And so when they go to college, there's no more force. And so the compliance stops because there's yeah. never been a heart change. And, and we need to look at that both in ourselves and in our children, just like, and I believe that comes so clearly from Jonah. Yeah. So clearly. So good, Brian. And I, I love that, and we were talking about this earlier, you know, that question, was Jonah obedient or was he just merely compliant? Yes. And you feel like chapter four reveals his heart. And right. that's and that's why God included chapter four uh, <laughs> for us to see. You know, some people think there is a, a kind of a proverbial chapter five and that maybe Jonah wrote this, right, to expose himself. Um, and But we don't have any evidence that that's the case. Right. Uh, but regardless, it exposes our hearts, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, that a lot of times we presume upon God. We think we know. How how God you know works and acts, um, but the reality is is His mercy, His grace, His love are deeper, um, and, and we need to know that to be transformed. Right. And so, to be clear, the true star of the book isn't Jonah, but God. Amen. Um, G. Campbell Morgan once observed: Men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. Uh, and so, and it's interesting because Jonah even quotes from Exodus thirty-four, right? He said, "God, I knew this is what You would do. do. I knew that You are gracious and merciful." slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, you know? And so it's just fascinating the, the play here, and I think we can relate in so many ways. So, and another thing, if we zoom out and we go back to the idea of the covenant, this is fascinating to me, Brian, that even in a time of unfaithfulness among his people, even when this prophet, right, the, the very man of God tries to flee uh, from the calling of God, God is still faithful to carry out his covenant, isn't he? Yep. All the way back to Abraham, right? He would bless his people so that they would be a blessing to the world. And so during this this time in which, you know, Israel is literally at risk of, of losing her identity, you know, being overcome and overrun, God is still sending his word to the nations. Right. And so this is one of the great missionary texts in the entire Bible kind of tucked into the Old Testament. And I think a lot of times when we think of the story of Jonah and the big fish, we don't realize that. Right. It, I mean, it's a, it's a whole book dedicated to a message to Gentiles. Yeah. You know, and how, how utterly unusual that is given the landscape of the Old Testament. Yeah. Right? That, that that's just such an unusual work. But again, it show, I love what you said. It shows God's you know, endless grace, right? His fathomless mercy, that, that his grace extends everywhere. It's not bounded by who we can love. That's right. It's not bounded by who we think deserves love. Yeah. Right. It, it's his grace that 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 prevails and it prevails whether we're obedient or not. That's right. God is as God is. God does as God does. That's right. You know, and, and, and so you know, we, we don't really have a whole we, you know, we, we can miss the blessing in disobedience. But, you know, God is going to accomplish his purposes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's just beautiful to see that even as powerful a prophet, like I say, Jonah was obviously fairly well known in all this. But even as powerful as he was, God is still greater. Yeah, yeah, and, definitely. And, and his voice rules over. And, and I think about the times that we're in right now, you know, you think about Israel and, and how they, you know, we're really struggling and, and, and you think about how we're really struggling as a culture. Mm. And yet in the middle of all this, God throws this story about the Gentiles. Right. In other words, God's plan is always so much bigger than ours. And so what if part of what's happening right now in the disruption of our world is that the gospel is going to get to places that it had difficulty going before? Wow. You know, and, and but again, we're all, we're all hunkered down and 
and worried about you know uh, the the things that are right in front of us when God may be doing something much much greater. And so I think this book helps us you know with with perspective in a time mm. like this as well. Yeah, maybe the cracks that are opening because of the strain of this pandemic, right, are places yeah. where God gets to go. Yeah, our places where we're supposed to go as people, because there's now cracks that that allow us in. Right, because even the Ninevites, right? I mean, at some yeah. point, the the violence of their society was taking its toll, right? And they were looking for light, and that's might might be why they were so open to Jonah's message of repentance. Wow, you know, and so it's it's pretty fascinating to 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 just man again connect the dots between, um, you know, the the word for those times that is still applicable to our times. Absolutely. All right, well, let's move on to the book of Amos. And so we could, man, just spend all day on any of these, but uh, but let's let's look at Amos. And man, I, I like Amos, uh, oh, yeah. and here's the reason why, right? He's a country boy from the South who was called to preach to the North. <laughs> And uh, and so you've got uh, you've got a guy again one of the earlier prophets in the eighth century. Um, this is during the reign of Uzziah in the south. Some of you will remember in Isaiah chapter six. We'll be in Isaiah here in a couple of weeks. Um, but uh, it's Uzziah that uh, you know that Isaiah was ministering during that time, and Jeroboam the second again in the north. So it was this time of surging national optimism. The economy was good. Uh, the world powers of Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt they were all weaker. Um, but God's people, uh, instead of you know saying, "Hey, thanks to God for the season of relative peace and prosperity," instead they were getting greedy, uh, and they were being unjust. And of course, idolatry continued to be an issue. So God calls uh, this guy Amos, who is a shepherd, a farmer, uh, and uh, you know this farmer turned prophet is one of the Bible's most direct and incisive uh, prophets. Uh, you know, Israel is quote ripe for judgment, which is a word picture that that Amos would understand. Uh, it's actually only the last five verses of this book that offer words of hope and promise. So uh, he was really trying to get the people's attention. So kind of a simple outline for the book of, of Amos. It begins with eight prophecies, uh, and it's kind of interesting the way they work. It's a judgment, and he begins with judging the surrounding nations. And Brian, you can almost hear the people of Israel being like, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, you you take that, you know? Yeah, you guys are... And, and then if you watch, if you trace it geographically, the bullseye gets closer and closer <laughs> until it lands on on God's people, on yep. Israel. Yep. And so they don't escape judgment either. As a matter of fact, that's kind of been the point all along. Uh, and so it's a reminder that God is just, right? That he, he judges all people by his standards, uh, including his own. And so then he moves into three sermons, and this illustrates the sins of Israel, pa- present, past, and future. Uh, and then by the time we get to chapter seven, there are five visions or word pictures, which I, you know, as a communicator, that I totally get what Amos is doing here. You got the sermon, but if you don't give people some word pictures to work with, it's hard for them to hang on to those truths. So he gives them these pictures of judgment in, in the form of locusts, fires, uh, the word picture of a plumb line, uh, summer fruit, and, and doorposts that have been uh, stricken. And so... Um, and then at the very end, as I mentioned, he ends with uh, the promise of restoration. Uh, there, there are some key verses in here. Of course, the most famous one, uh, famous in our time because it was quoted um, by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during the Civil Rights Movement, is chapter 5, verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever uh, flowing stream. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. He, he issues a famous warning in chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion 
And boy, I think that's a mm. message that could apply to the church uh, in these past years. You know, we're we're at ease and we're sitting back instead of engaging the whole world with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, which is you know the mission statement of our church and why we wanted to adopt that just to to be sure we're not sitting back when we should be engaging people with the hope of the gospel and serving others and bringing the light to the darkness. Uh, in chapter 8, uh, verses 11 and 12, uh, he prophesies, Amos does, uh, what we would call the intertestamental period, mm. in which there was no word from God, right? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Mm. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And so that, that uh, period of silence, prophetic silence, of course, is what prepared the way for the ministry of John the Baptist, who then prepared the way for the coming of Jesus, and so um, powerfully uh, predicted by Amos. And then at the end of chapter 9, of course, uh, is, is the, the promise of restoration, and that day I'll raise up the booth of David that has fallen to repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And so uh, even this book ends on a note of hope. And so what we learn from Amos is that God indicts Israel on several counts. Um, and, and I kind of want to go back to chapter 5, um, where the, the famous verse is about justice, um, because I think this section of that passage really illustrates Amos's entire message. First of all, the people uh, want to talk about future salvation, right? God's going to save us. We're God's people. But what they're doing is denying current sin. Right. In chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, you know, describe that. And so, and it uses this metaphor of darkness and light. And basically, Amos is saying, listen, it's a dark time in our world when God's people should be the light. So, you know, we're, we're giving into these slogans and phrases, God, God are going to save us. We're God's chosen people. But yet we're not acting like God's people. Mm. And so then what they move into is, is an indictment. Uh, Amos moves into an indictment of indulging in worship while ignoring injustice. And so God kind of interrupts their their church service, Brian, right, to let them know that he can't stand their acts of religion if they're not going to live out what they believe. Right. And and I feel like there's there's again just such application to our day and age, you know, that we put so much emphasis on the religious experience, on the emotions that we have when we sing and pray and hear a good message and all those things are important. God's not saying they're not. But what he's saying is if we don't walk out the doors and live them, if we don't live what we believe, then God's like, I'm sick of it. Right. He just is. Cool. And so we get this beautiful picture, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, because God's people should unleash rolling, rushing, flowing streams of living water, right? Jesus in John 4 and in John 7. And then, of course, ultimately in Revelation 22, we see what flowing through through the, the new city of God. We see a river, a river of life. Yeah. And our world needs that because it's been scorched, it's parched by sin. So I think, Brian, the message of Amos is, in essence, let's, yes, long for God's future salvation, but at the same time, we are called to confront sin and be praying and working for justice in the here and now. Exactly. And I love that, right? That kingdom come, that will be done, that you, that you put on the handout. That's, and, and so many people will fall off either side of that. Right. Right. You can, because you can fall off and be, right, to be you know, too heavenly minded to be any earthly good, right? right. what they say. And then there's the social gospel where yep. you neglect the actual theology in, in, in light of the world's purposes instead of God's purposes, right? Yep. And so it's aligning that theological, that, that, ex, that doctrinal experience with how you live your life life. 
And James says, right, faith without works is dead. If you yeah. don't live it, you don't believe it. Yeah. And so it's a, a both and of those things. We have to both understand and worship God, and what will flow out of that is our actions. Now, we're not defined by our actions, right? Our actions don't tell us who we are. That's right. But because of who we are, because the Holy Spirit is in us, I love the word out of Scripture, right? we are compelled. Yeah. We are compelled to these things of mercy and justice. We are compelled to help the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. Yep. Right? We are com- we are com- there's a compelling inside of us to seek the Lord. And if you don't have that compelling, you have to stop and, and pause and look at your faith. Yeah. Right? You have to look at it because it says the Holy Spirit will compel you to these things. And, um, and, and so much, like you say, so much of the church has been almost internally focused to if we can just have a better experience or, a, or you know, and attract more people. And that's not what the God says. The God says if you can be holy, mm-hmm. right, if you can be designated, yeah. separated apart and designated for my purposes, then ki- the kingdom comes, right? The kingdom comes through that, through, and he doesn't need sacrifices. He, he calls us to obedience. Yeah. I will know you love me because you obey my command. Yeah. And and we see that 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 Amos brings that to focus, in in you keep doing all these rituals and they're meaningless because your heart is far. It goes back to right. They're doing the rituals out of compliance or maybe yeah. out of habit. Yep. Right. Instead of out of obedience. Yeah. There it is again. And so that echo. Right. We got an echo of that mm-hmm. from from Jonah to Amos. And that's what's fun. You know. Again, looking at all these books, you can dive deep and get so many good things. But then we look and we're going to see these themes that yeah. that continue to emerge. And and you know, one of these these themes, and this kind of harkens back to what we were talking about with Jonah, is that sometimes we we don't. Grasp the the character of God the way we think mm. we do, yeah. and so that moves us to our next book, the book of Hosea, because right in the middle of all of these prophecies that are harsh, and Hosea certainly contains its, its it contains its fair share of judgments against God's people, but we see another dimension to mm. God's love, mm. uh, and so you know the, the name Hosea uh, literally means salvation in Hebrew. It's very close to the name for Joshua, you know, which means Yahweh is salvation. But Hosea literally is just the word salvation. Now, we don't know anything about this guy outside of the Bible, but we do know that his life and ministry were connected by the, the, the sign act of his marriage, that he was called to marry an unfaithful woman, Gomer. Uh, and so he ministered in Israel, the northern kingdom, again in the time of Jeroboam II, uh, and he had a pretty long career. For about 45 years, uh, he ministered, which which takes us into the time that the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. Uh, so Hosea, Amos, and Micah, these are kind of what we call the three old men of the minor <laughs> prophets um, who prophesied during uh, that that period of history. Uh, a real simple outline of Hosea. I preached a message on this July 5th, so if you want to go back, you can listen to the whole thing. But um, really, the first three chapters are about his marriage, and the rest of it is about his message. So it begins with what we call a strange love story, uh, which is Israel's unfaithfulness pictured in this woman, Gomer. Uh, and so God calls Hosea as his defining act of ministry and his calling to ministry to to marry this woman. Uh, and then immediately after that story in the first three chapters, we see that love's, love's challenge, as sin always challenges love. And so mm. we see Israel's sins proclaimed. Uh, it, it, God doesn't hold back, speaking through the prophet, the issues that the people have. Um, and then we see the tough side of love. So we're going to see this tender picture of love, but we see the tough love of God as well, as well because love puts up boundaries. Um, 
love seeks the good of the beloved, and sometimes that means you have to do the hard thing. You have to have the hard conversation. You have to uh, you have to be be willing to go there. And so Israel's judgment is pronounced. That's chapters eight through ten. And then of course uh, we see redeeming love, Israel's restoration promised, which harkens back to the fact uh, that in chapter three uh, Hosea is told to go and pursue, find Gomer, and to redeem her, to purchase her back uh, from the man and the slavery that she's in. There's all kinds of beautiful verses in Hosea, chapter 2, 19 and 20, one of the most beautiful pictures of, of marriage, uh, of both God to his people, but also a man to a woman. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And that word for knowledge doesn't mean head knowledge. It means heart knowledge. It means intimate knowledge. Uh, of course, chapter 3 is where Hosea redeems his wife, and chapter 4 is the accusations of Israel. Chapter 6, the first six verses, are a beautiful plea for repentance. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. Mm. You know, and you think about the way like a muscle works in the human body. You've got to break that muscle down for it to be rebuilt stronger. And that's one of the things that God's always doing in the lives of his people is that he breaks us down so that he can rebuild us with a greater foundation and really understanding who he is and built on truth. And beautiful passage there. Uh, chapter 8, verse 7 has the famous phrase, they sow the wind, they will reap the whirlwind, talking about um, the, the, the reality of the consequences uh, that we receive from our actions. Uh, chapter 11, uh, verses 8 and 9, we see the, the, the metaphor flipped a little bit to that of God as a father who's nurtured up Israel and brought them up and protected them and trained them and says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils in me. My compassion grows warm and tender. So, you know, this book portrays the tough love of God, but it also, Brian, portrays the tenderness of God. And then at the end of chapter 14, the last chapter, it talks about returning, again, that word for repentance. So just some incredible passages in Hosea. And what do we learn from Hosea? Well, we, we learn that God will go to great lengths to get the attention of his people. Um, think about this, Brian, with me. If you stood up on your wedding day and you knew that the woman who stood beside you was going to betray you, would you go through with it? And yet that's exactly what God did when he made a covenant with Israel, with his people. He knew because he's God that they would one day betray him, and yet he went through it anyway for his great name, for his purposes, for his plan. He was willing to endure that emotional pain, you know, and sometimes it's interesting because we think of God as not having emotions, but clearly, um, you know, the Bible portrays God as he he does. Um, he, you know, he, 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 he's just so deep in so many ways, and so that word picture is so powerful and compelling, and, and so it, it just, you know, it's stunning for me to think about that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and 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 to see the length to which which and and like I say, when we see the length to which Hosea will go, and then you think about right, and and, and you, Jesus saying, you know, if a father knows not to give you a stone, right? How much more? How much more will your father in heaven give you a good thing? Yeah, right. And and you see that exemplified here in Hosea, right? Hosea is willing to go to this length for his unfaithful wife. Think what the Lord will do for you, right? What can you do that's so bad that He won't call you home? Yeah. Yeah. Right, and wow. and it gives so much hope, so much hope to the to those of us who have fallen so far, 
right? That, that the, the Lord will reconcile, that he will reconcile us to himself. Yeah, I meant, meant, mentioned in my sermon, you know, we all want to be Hosea. We want to be the good guy. But the reality of this text is we're, <laughs> we're Gomer. You no know, we're, we're unfaithful. We, we have one night stands with our other gods, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, we betray, we betray the one that we say that we love. So many good layers to this. Mm. But let me point this out too. Gomer's marriage and his family, Brian, are not a proof text for missionary dating, Amen. right? Amen. <laughs> so, Amen. So just, I've heard that before a couple of times, but but God God clearly lays out the plan for marriage and families in Scripture. So the point of this, again, is what God is doing to get the attention of his people. Uh, the point of Hosea's call is to shock and surprise us so that we'll pay attention. And, and God doesn't hold back, does he? Right. Uh, he flat out calls our idolatry spiritual adultery. Yep. You know, sometimes we think breaking his commands is just like, oh, we're just breaking a rule in school. You know, we're breaking a principle. But no, here it's clear. For God, the way he sees it, we are violating our marriage vows. Mm. You know, it'd be mm. like standing up on your wedding day and saying, you know what? Nope, I'm not going to have and hold. Right. <laughs> uh, right. I'm not going to stick with this person for better, for worse, right. you know, for richer, for poor. It's it's vi- violating those marriage vows, which is heavy. Mm. Uh, as I mentioned, we see God's love both tough and tender, right? Love has to have boundaries. And yet at the same time, that doesn't stop God from pursuing and redeeming his people. Uh, and God's people are not depicted as beautiful in any way, shape, or form here, right? <laughs> right. Like Gomer, we're all deeply broken by our sin, but it's God's relentless love that makes us beautiful. Gomer's only hope was a love she didn't deserve, right. and that's our only mm. hope as well. Uh, and a couple of just quick, important New Testament connections, Hosea 11.1, 1, about bringing my son out of Egypt, is quoted in Matthew 2. Matthew picks up on that theme as, as Jesus, as a child, has to flee to Egypt with Mary and Joseph. Uh, and then Hosea... Um, Paul picks up on uh, Hosea's theme in Romans 9, uh, 25 and 26, and I love I love this passage where it says, I'll call the nobodies and make them somebodies. Mm. I'll call the unloved and make them beloved. Amen. That's the way that God's redeeming love transforms us, the way that Hosea's pursuit of Gomer transformed her. Amen. And you and you look at the laws. We were talking about this earlier, right? That that you know, there's a couple of kind. There's two kinds of laws. I think Beekner, there's a quote Beekner quote on this. That he says, you know, there's laws that are the way things are supposed to be, and then the laws about the way things are, right? And the the former is like you know, don't trespass, and the latter is the law of gravity. Yeah. And God's laws, we tend to think of, are like the first part when they're really the second part, mm. right? And that and and that's what Hosea calls us to. Yeah. That there's a reality to how God has things, and when we go against that reality, we just break ourselves. Yeah. Because it's not an ideal world setup. It's a this is how the world works, and the Lord wants what's best for us. And so, because He wants what's best for us, that's why He calls us to be faithful. Yeah. Right, it's it's those t- those temptations and callings are are just that they lead to darkness and despair and yep. and brokenness and and he will and in his redemption he will build us back up, yeah. right? He will restore and renew, and that's just that's just you know again like you say especially with us being Gomer, you know what a, what an incredibly hopeful message, what Absolutely. an incredibly hopeful thing. Absolutely. Well, and then that leads us to Micah. So our fourth and, and final, and, and Brian, you're intimately acquainted with this name. I am. This is the namesake of my youngest that, son. That's so. right. And his name means who is like Yahweh. That's right. So, and which is kind of teased out in the book itself where he asked the question in chapter seven, who is a like God it. like you? Right. Uh, and so Micah is the first prophet we've looked at who preached primarily to the Southern kingdom. Yep. Uh, so Jonah, of course, was to the Gentiles, and then we had uh, Hosea and Amos uh, to the Northern kingdom. But Micah is 
is another country boy like Amos. He was from a little town, an agricultural town uh, near the Philistine territory of Gath. Uh, so he was a country boy called to preach in the big city of Jerusalem. Uh, he preached there for 30 years. Uh, wow. Some scholars call this book Isaiah in miniature. We're going to do Isaiah here in just a couple of weeks um, because they share a lot of the same themes. But mm-hmm. Isaiah kind of focuses more globally, world affair, politics. Micah focuses on moral social issues. Yep. Um, and his short little prophecy uh, contains one of the most famous prophecies in the Bible, uh, that uh, the Messiah would be born in a little insignificant town called Bethlehem. And another interesting thing about Micah, when you read it, uh, compared to the other prophets, you know, we often talk about prophets, you know, when we say prophet, a lot of people think fortune teller, you know, f- you know, future teller, that kind of thing. Um, in Micah, there actually is a good percentage of, of foretelling in addition to forthtelling. Hmm. Uh, and so he's one of the more kind of apocalyptic and forward th- looking of the prophets. But let me give you a simple outline for the book of Micah, uh, all ours here, like a good preacher, right? We're going to alliterate. <laughs> I didn't make this up. I came across it, but uh, it begins with rebellion, the prediction of judgment. That's chapters one through three. Then, though, we have this promise of rebirth. And so that's chapter four, the promise of a coming kingdom. Uh, and then rise, uh, the, the, the prophecy about Bethlehem is in chapter five, the promise of a coming king. Uh, and then response, uh, the courtroom plea of God, chapter six. And we'll look at that a little more closely in a moment. Uh, and then return, right? The promise of final salvation, that's chapter seven. So that's those forward-looking texts that I was talking about a moment ago. Uh, I love in chapter three, verse eight, you hear Micah uh, talking about when everybody else is selling out to the world powers around them. Micah says, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And Amen. so uh, that, you know, you don't get a lot of direct Holy Spirit talk in the Old <laughs> Testament, but that's a beautiful passage that tells us what was in Micah's heart and what was motivating him and how God was speaking through him. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating to me is we, we learn that prophets aren't heartless, right? They have feelings too. Yeah. Um, in Micah 1 verse 8, for this I, lo- I will lament and wail uh, that we see the, the emotions of Micah and brokenhearted, just like God was over his people. Uh, it's interesting to me that God holds both the people, that's kind of chapters one and two, but also their leaders. He calls them out specifically in chapter three. Uh, and so often as the leaders go, so go the people. Uh, and, and these are big words, but really, and this is throughout all the prophets, the argument that our orthopraxy, which is what we do, needs to match our orthodoxy, what we believe. Amen. And that's what Micah is calling out in the life of the people. Uh, And so I mentioned earlier, there's all these prophecies that are in here. You will pick up on some of them as you read, but remember our illustration of a mountain range. Uh, If you're looking at a a series of mountain ranges, I got to hike in the Smokies this week. We were up high. We saw some beautiful mountain ranges, but you have the mountains that are in the foreground that are closer to you. They're a little more clear and defined, and then you've got the successive ranges. That's the way that, that many of these prophecies work. They had Some of them had a more near immediate fulfillment, and then some of them were fulfilled later in history with the coming of the Messiah, uh, some of them in the church age, and of course, some of them still to come in the second coming of the Messiah. But Really, the core of the heart of Micah is chapter 6, where uh, there's basically this courtroom scene that's introduced, uh, and God indicts the people um, for their greed and their hypocrisy and their idolatry. And what's fascinating is uh, we see what the Lord requires, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, right? He's already told you. Like you, you know, God's saying, you already know, right? What does the Lord require of you? Because he does demand something of us, right? Our obedience. And it says to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. 
So just for a moment, I want to unpack those. Doing justice means that we can't just talk about it, right? We don't just write blogs about it. We don't just, you know, have marches and, and think about doing it. No, we're supposed to do it. The word there in Hebrew is used 400 times in the Old Testament. Clearly, justice wow. is important to God. Some other words that we might use to describe what that justice means, integrity, honesty, or truthfulness, but most definitely concerned for the weak. Mm. One of the gauges mm. God has always used to measure the heart and the obedience of his people is what are you willing to do for the orphan and the widow and the foreigner? Amen. What are you willing to do for the ones who can't do anything back in return for you? Do you have compassion like I have compassion? Do you have a heart like I have a heart? And so that's what it means to do justice, to live with integrity, honesty, and to show concern for the weak and the poor. You think of James chapter one, right? Where James says, true religion, right, is this, uh, is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Uh, and so th- those are those connections for us. And the second thing that he tells us is to love kindness. And that's the, the Hebrew word kased, uh, which is used 250 times uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, and that's the idea of loyal love, grace, uh, extends to forgiveness. Uh, it's probably the closest Old Testament word to the New Testament word for grace that we have. And so when we love kindness, that's we are to uh, show loyal love to God and to others. And then the third word, interestingly enough, is only used here in the Old Testament. It's the only time it appears, the word tisana, which means lowly, to walk with authentic humility. Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting is, you know, when we talk about doing justice, there's a lot of people who want to brag about it. There's a lot of people who want attention for doing it. If here very clearly, the prophet tells us, now when you do justice and when you love kindness, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to walk with humility. You're supposed to walk lowly before your God. And so our profession of faith and our practice of faith, they have to align, Brian, or it's yeah. not true faith. Uh, I love the quote, I believe God, so I obey God. Yeah. Again, James 2, right? Yeah. Faith without works is dead. Yeah. Uh, our works don't save us. But at the same time, they are evidence of saving faith in our life. Right. It's the, it's the fruit, right? The Lord, Lord says a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. A bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. And so those actions, right, that's where we see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Right? Yeah. Those are demonstrated in what we do. Those are not abstract concepts that people kind of look at us and go, you look pretty gentle today. Yeah. Right? They see that in how we interact. Yeah. They see, and those and those fruits are are the the fruit of the spirit, right? singular. But those aspects of the fruit are are not for us; they're for others. They're done in community, because you know a tree doesn't make fruit for itself. Yeah, and and, and so that's that's what we see in Micah is is this communal aspect of faith that it, it, it we have to we don't do justice ourselves. We don't have mercy on ourselves. We do this with each other. It's the second tablet of the of the Ten Commandments. Yep. That it's it's how we interact with each other in the world, and as, and as you said, in particular, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, or sojourner, right? Yep. The widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. That trio echoes throughout the Old Testament. Yeah. So we always want to ask, right, how this points us to Jesus, mm. and and I hope it's clear after a quick survey. <laughs> we spent about ten minutes each on these four four books of the Bible. Uh, the the idea that you know Jesus said it's summed up in this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. It all connects because that that's the essence of what the prophets are telling us. Amen. And so the prophets point us to the ministry of Jesus and saying the way that you honor and worship God matters, and that will affect the way that you see everything and everyone else in your life. Amen. Amen. 
All right. Well, Brian, we're about at that 45-minute mark, so uh, I'm going to say a word of prayer, and uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks, and we will tackle uh, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, and so I uh, hope that uh, this is helpful to you. Again, email us. Let us know if you have questions. Uh, but we're glad that you're tuning in, walking through the Bible with us this summer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the prophets. Mm-hmm. We thank you for the courage and the clarity with which they spoke your word that remind us, God, that we are to love you first with everything we've got. And out of the overflow of that love, a transforming and redeeming love, we are to love others, that we're to do justice, love mm-hmm. kindness, and to walk humbly with you. So God, would those be our takeaways for today? And Father, we thank you that we don't have to do this in our own strength, mm-hmm. but we do it in the strength of the Spirit that comes to us by the person of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, Brian. Thank you.